I fell in love with you right then. <laughs> Hey Rockers, welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rocky Podcast. I'm your co-host, Seth Hinckley, sitting here with the Paul Meany to my Darren King, the Dean of Rock U, Mr. Matt Black. I don't even know that one. I can't wait to find out what it is. You'll, you'll see here. Okay. You'll see here. Right. How, how you doing, Seth? I'm doing good, man. Right. How are you? I'm doing fine. What are you wearing today? Today, Seth, I'm wearing my Johnny Cash in the Tennessee 3 t-shirt. The man in black. Which is when he got a little more money and didn't have to be Johnny Cash in the Tennessee 2 anymore, and he, he can afford a drummer. <laughs> little known fact, podcast people, when Johnny Cash didn't have a drummer, he threaded a dollar bill through his guitar strings and played it like a snare drum. Nice. I can show you how to do that someday. That would be cool. I'm sporting my Mute Math t-shirt from the Vitals tour when I saw him in Houston a few years back. Great show. <laughs> Matt's looking at me no, like, no, no, no. I, I'm who's thinking, Mute Matt? You said Where Vitals, and I was thinking Rush, but it's <clears throat> Signals is what I'm thinking. Signals. Yeah, yeah, sorry, or, sorry. or there is a song that they have called Vital Signs. I was going to say, I knew that, so. that just that just flipped my Rush trigger there. And flipped I figured, your Rush trigger. Yeah, That's okay. always good to have a Rush trigger. All right, so what are we doing today? Today, Seth, we are talking about our top five live albums. Sweet. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. We got to talk about criteria like okay, we always let's do. Let's do it. Yes, let's absolutely do. And we should do an over under on overlaps. Oh yeah, no, we'll get yeah. to the over under. Okay. okay. Well, we'll do criteria. You want my criteria? Over-under. Yeah. Okay, I had a couple. First, I only considered things that were intended first as a live album, not afterthoughts. So, for example, something that was a TV show or a, you know, a movie that also was released as a live album. Ah, uh, okay. So, like Unplugged by MTV didn't exactly, make your list. Exactly. Unplugged Dang wouldn't it. have made my list. That's okay if it made yours. It wouldn't have no, played no, mine. No, no, yeah. I was, no. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I know one of the albums on your list, and yeah. now that MTV Unplugged is off the list, yeah, I can't yeah. say it. Yeah, yeah. No, and another one would have been like, for example, like something that was released as a movie, like Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads. I didn't consider okay. it. If I didn't feel like the live album was the principal reason for the existence of the album. Wow. You and, went... <laughs> I went <laughs> you, deep. You went deep. And That's my true. other criterion was... I tried to consider what the album added to the artist's body of work. So okay. some of these albums contain what I consider the definitive version of a particular song. And I didn't actually use any, but I know in a lot of cases there are songs which only appear on live albums. Right, yeah. Are never never released as a, as a studio recording. I didn't happen to use any of those, but I was looking for something that, again, added to the general understanding of who the artist was and what he or she produced or they produced in their time. Okay, cool. What about yours? All right. I chose albums that were all live cuts, so not anything that was mixed in with studio cuts and live cuts. So like Rattle and Hum by U2 was not on my list. I also tried to cut out albums that were questionable if they were recorded live, Uh like Kiss Alive. There's a lot of back and forth about whether they added some crowd noise to a studio cut or they added things from the studio to a live cut to make it sound better. So I tried to keep all those out. So over under, I'm going to say that the over under is one and I'm right. taking the under because I don't the, think you have anything on my list. All right. I'll take the under also just because <laughs> the only one I thought you might also have, uh, I've kind of tipped my hand toward. And if you don't think it's – if it's not on your list, then it's probably not on either one. We probably have no no hits in common. Okay. Do you want to go first? Or sure. Want, I, right. don't, I never remember who went first last time. Me either. Time, so I'll go I first. don't. I'll go first. All right. 
All right. So uh, my first one doesn't really fit my criteria in the sense that. <laughs> well, so, so in the you se- just hold threw on. The rules out. In the just sense, just throw the in the sense that to start. In the sense that this artist really only existed to perform. They never didn't ever really record in the studio. Oh, okay. Um, and it's uh, an album. But called, that counts under your criteria because it's so. all live. I, yeah, I suppose so. In a way, yeah. it does. It's a technicality, but I'll take it. Uh, it's live <laughs> at the Beacon by New York Rock and Soul Review. And wow. New York Rock and Soul Review is an incredible compilation of artists, including Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, Phoebe Snow, Michael McDonald, Boz Skaggs, two of the guys from The Rascals, Charles Brown, and a bunch of other really talented musicians who did do some studio recording, but nothing was ever serious. But they released this one album, Live at the Beacon, recorded at the Beacon Theater in 1991. Uh-huh. And uh, it's just a fantastic album. And there's no uh, original tracks on it. I mean, in, except when they were performing their own original tracks. But in other words, they didn't write anything as a group and record it as a group. Okay. They were performing a review. So there's some uh, Otis Redding tunes on there. And there's, uh, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't even think. Blues standards, R&B standards, soul standards. And it's just a fantastic album. It captures the energy of a live performance. There's not a huge amount of crowd noise on the album. I would have liked a little more maybe to, to feel the energy yeah. a little bit better in the room. But what you do feel is the chemistry between the performers in a way that you can't get with a studio album anymore because right, yeah. they're not usually playing at the same time anymore. So yeah. New York Rock and Soul Review, live at the Beacon Theater, That's 1991. Your That's your number five. Yeah, and my least inspired choice. It gets better from here. <laughs> So my number five is Live in Las Vegas by Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds. I know this is probably going to get me a little backlash because I could have gone with a Dave Matthews band live record because there's almost an unlimited supply of those with the full band, you know, including Carter Beaufort, one of my favorite drummers of all time. But the tracks on this one with just Dave and Tim are stellar. There's only two guitars and Dave's one voice. And this album really showcases the talents of these two Hall of Fame-worthy musicians. The great tracks on this one include a single from Dave called Ehe, Squirm, Grace is Gone, Loving Wings, and I'm going to mess this one up probably, Kundalini Bonfire, Christmas Song, Bartender, and Save Me. And Tim does a solo version of Cashmere by Led Zeppelin that's a really good high point on this record. Dave and Tim have been playing together as a duo off and on since 1993, and this album was recorded in December of 2009, about a year after Tim Reynolds joined the Dave Matthews Band as a full-time member. And the song Kundalini Bonfire, which is a solo effort by Tim Reynolds, was nominated for a Grammy Award in the category of Best Rock Instrumental Performance, but ultimately lost out to Jeff Beck's Hammerhead. At the end of the track, if you listen really closely, you can hear Dave tell Tim, kind of away from the mic, I fell in love with you right then. (laughs) That was beeping powerful. I hope you got carried away with it. Nice. And the chemistry between these two guys on this record is phenomenal. The way that they play off of each other, and they play some of Dave's songs. Uh, like I said, they played a couple of covers. The one, the, the Tim original, I think that's an original, Kundalini Bonfire, and some of Dave's solo stuff. Just a great record all the way through. Wonderful live performance. And some of those songs, like Squirm, I think is actually just as good or better than the Dave Matthews full band version. Cool. So what's your number four? 
Okay, my number four is B.B. King live in Cook County Jail. Nice. Okay, so when I was a kid in high school, like every other kid my age in my high school, we were into Stevie Ray Vaughan. Of and course. word got be? around that there was this guy who was Stevie Ray Vaughan's favorite guitar player, who he mm-hmm. emulated. This guy named B.B. King, who I'd never heard of, or I'd heard the name, but I had no idea who he was. And uh, one day, I was probably sophomore or junior in high school, he showed up and he played a concert. And I, my friends and I went to see the concert. And after seeing that concert, we went to every B.B. King concert we could. Oh, yeah. I think we saw him four years in a row in the same venue. And then I've seen him in Paris, too. Um, he's recently deceased, so right. won't have, get that chance again. B.B. King, the chairman of the board of the Blues Singers, one of the most amazing guitar players that has ever lived. In 1970, he played a show in a club in Chicago, Mr. Kelly's Nightclub. And the warden of Cook County Jail was at the performance. And he came up to him after the show and asked if he'd play in Cook County Jail. Yeah. Uh, which is something that B.B. King had never thought about. There was a Most Chicago... musicians don't think about booking <laughs> well, Now they do, because jails. this actually started a trend. Actually, this, was, this followed a trend, which I'll get to later in my, in my top five. There was a Chicago politician named Jerry Butler who had been a singer for the Motown group The Impressions, and he set it up. And it's interesting because... Oh, and then, by the way, sorry, B.B. informed his label that he was going to do this, and they said, can we come record it? The album spent 20 was released in uh, 1971, spent 25 weeks on the Billboard Top LP chart and number one on the R&B charts, which was B.B. Uh, King's only album to hit number one on the R&B charts, which is pretty surprising, actually. A couple notable things. First of all, the energy in the room is very interesting because there are about 2,000 inmates... But even though it was the warden's idea, and even though he was, you know, B.B. King hadn't asked for this or pushed for this, he was an invited guest, they were very security conscious. They hired a whole bunch of ex-boxers to be security, and they told the inmates they had to stay in their seats. They couldn't dance. Or if they hadn't wanted to dance, they had to go to the back of the room in this very sort of closed-off area. So you can kind of feel the tension, but you can also feel at the same time this excitement because this was something that was obviously a change from the routine, but also there was an element of restraint just barely being held on to. Tension. You can feel it. You can feel it. I mean, if you didn't know it was recorded in the jail, you'd probably wonder what was going on because the the crowd noise is muted but again interesting what was really cool about the album was a whole bunch of journalists covered the event because of the musical interest but they learned a lot about the inmates so most of these 2000 inmates most of them were young black men awaiting trial many for more than a year they were in Cook County Jail waiting for their trials. And that did expose some flaws in the justice system. It led to some reforms. I'm not sure how important these reforms were, but it's generally considered an event that did reform the justice system. And it changed B.B. King. He was moved by the experience. He went on to perform more than 50 prison concerts after that. Wow. Yeah, which I hadn't ever realized. I knew about this album, but I hadn't realized the rest. And he founded with celebrity lawyer F. Lee Bailey, who I'm sure you've heard of. Oh, yeah. (laughs) uh, The Foundation for the Advancement of Inmate Rehabilitation and recreation. Nice. B.B. Uh, King was quoted saying, I don't think that when a guy does something wrong, he shouldn't be punished. But if he does it as a human being, he should pay for it as a human being. Right. Uh, and it's a, it's a great album. So my number four is Armistice Live by Mute Math from 2010. This record is the companion of the concert film, so I'm violating your, your rule. That's okay. It's, your, not, it's my rule, not your rule. <laughs> it's a companion of the concert film of the same name that was released by this New Orleans duo, in air quotes, because they've got more guys in the band than just the two guys that started it. 
It's a recording of their 2009 performance at the Tabernacle in Atlanta, Georgia, during the Armistice Tour. The studio album Armistice is a meticulously produced record with lots of studio-engineered effects, but somehow the band replicates it not equally, but congruently in a live setting. And while it's not equal, it's equally as good. And at some points, better than the studio versions of the songs. The music truly is the star of the show on this record. There are things that they play live that sound almost impossible to do with just the four of them that are playing. And Darren King's drumming is astoundingly good as always. The highlight tracks, at least for me, on this one are Clipping, Control, Typical, Pins and Needles, Spotlight, and Reset. Paul Meany, who's the lead vocalist and multi-instrumentalist, Darren King on drums, Greg Hill on guitar, and Roy Mitchell Cardenas is also another multi-instrumentalist and backing vocalist. They all put on a mesmerizing performance on this record. If you don't know Mute Math, this is the album you need to listen to to get into them. I don't so, know Mute Math, so... Pull up, pull up Armistice Live and all take right. a listen. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Cool. You might even recognize some of the songs. I might. They've had a few songs in a couple of movies, and I know that some of their stuff has been used in advertisements, so you may have heard some of these songs and just not known it was Mute Math. Cool. All right, what's your number three? Okay, going back to jail for this one. Uh, Man, wait, <laughs> you got a prison theme And my going. t-shirt, I do, I do. I have mentioned Johnny Cash many times on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, he's one of my favorite artists uh, and, and spans and, all musical styles in a way from country to punk rock. Johnny Cash released Folsom Prison Blues in 1955 and immediately started getting letters from inmates yeah. asking him to come and play at their prisons. And this is an idea that he loved, but his record label was in turmoil at this time and for about the next 10 years. So he never actually did it, even though it was an idea that he had. Right. Well, fast forward to 10 or 12 years later, he's kind of taken a dive commercially. He's got a lot of problems with painkiller addiction, going through yeah. a tumultuous period in his life. And his label stabilizes and he pushes this idea and he decides to go and record an album in Folsom Prison. Folsom, uh, I think it's a county prison. I'm not sure. California State Prison. California State Prison. Yeah, yeah I right. think it is. Because yeah. if it wasn't, I think it would be called a jail. Well, I don't the know. county jail. Maybe. State well, prison. You, you're the lawyer. I'll, I'll trust <laughs> you. Okay. Anyway, goes and record, decides to record this album. First of all, unlike B.B. King's experience, even though, again, B.B. King was invited by the warden, but the correctional facility was extremely enthusiastic about this. And in, right. unlike B.B. King's experience, where there was a lot of security suppressing the prisoner reaction, in his performance at Folsom Prison, they were trying to whip it up to get yeah. more enthusiasm on the record. And they didn't really have to work very hard. I think these prisoners oh, were... Oh, not at all. We're digging it. A uh, couple of notes. So Ro Governor Ronald Reagan at the time actually had dinner with Johnny Cash wow. the night before. I didn't uh, know that it was also June Carter Cash was also performing. Also the Statler Brothers and Carl Perkins. So these, yep. are, these are big country acts. Carl Perkins, I think was one of the first people to use an electric guitar in country music. Well, he was extremely influential. I don't know if he was yeah, the first, he but totally, he was extremely influential. Well, one of the first. Including maybe, on yeah. the Beatles, but that's a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they played two shows 
just in case the first one didn't go well. Uh, yeah. And the first one was at 9.30 in the morning, so I don't know <laughs> uh, which one was which, which cuts were used. By the way, I mentioned that they were trying to whip the crowd up. One of the things that's really interesting is if you go to Spotify now, there is the extended or deluxe version or whatever, where yeah. you don't just hear the tracks, but you hear the tracks that weren't included, and also the MC talking in between the tracks, again, trying to get the prisoners to oh, make a lot of noise. that would be cool it's to really listen cool. to. It's on I'm going to have to go look that it's up. It's on Spotify. The MC, by the way, was Hugh Cherry. Oh, I think was a local DJ or something like that. I'm not mm. I'm not quite sure. Just a few things. First of all, there's a popular misconception out there that Folsom Prison Blues was an autobiographical song. Johnny Cash was never incarcerated. He spent yeah. a night or two in a drunk tank once in a while, but he was never a sentence for anything. He, and he never, never shot a man in Reno just to in watch Reno. him die. That's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> he actually wrote the song in Germany when he's in, in the Air Force, and he saw a movie called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. But this experience was one of the things, not the only thing, but the experience of playing in a in a prison was one of the things that made him a lifelong advocate for the underdog and the downtrodden. He championed yeah. prison reform, civil rights, especially for Native Americans, children's rights. He was an anti-poverty activist. He became an anti-Vietnam War activist after after going on a USO tour, completely changed his opinions about the war. Right. And he adopted the name and the look, the, the man, man in black, black, because in his own words, it's still my symbol of rebellion against the stagnant status quo, against our hypocritical houses of God, against people whose minds are closed to other ideas. Others, excuse me, others' ideas. So this is a great experience. Another thing, too, just a little thing, you know, everyone, well, I don't know everyone, everyone who's into Johnny Cash is familiar with that great way he would start his concerts. Hello, I'm Johnny, I'm Johnny Cash. Yeah. Because of this album. I mean, this was a live album, so that was recluded on the first track, which was Folsom Prison Blues. And without that, uh, we wouldn't have that in the popular lexicon, or at least in the popular lexicon of Johnny Cash fans. Didn't he start his TV show off with that, too? Probably, but it was already... A thing, yeah, because, because of because the of album. because yeah. of Folsom, live yeah. at Folsom Prison. Yeah. Well, I don't really have much more to say about that, but Johnny Cash may come back up later in this conversation. Uh, Is he Johnny Cash be at, at Folsom Prison, or number one. Well, we'll see. All uh, right, not, not All right. No. actually no, <laughs> but I'm not quite through with him yet. All right, my number three is an album that we've touched on before. It's Secret World Live by Peter Gabriel that came out in 1994. And like my number four pick, this record also has a companion concert film of the same name. Peter does his usual stunning job as a showman and powerful voice at this concert that was filmed in Italy while being backed up by Paula Cole's superior performance of her co-lead parts on Shaking the Tree, Blood of Eden, and especially on Don't Give Up, where she sings Kate Bush's part from the original that we talked about before. And the rhythm section of Tony Levin, who's a phenomenal bassist, and he also plays this thing called a Chapman stick. You know what that I is? I know what a Chapman stick is. That is a crazy instrument with so many strings, but it looks like it's impossible to play. But Tony Levin plays it like it's nothing. I mean, he's amazing. Well, to quote the keyboard player from Spinal Tap, I've got two hands. <laughs> And the incomparable Manu Kache on drums, They're, the whole band is sublime. There are so many highlights on this record. Come Talk to Me, Steam, Salisbury Hill, Digging in the Dirt, Secret World, Don't Give Up, like we said, and In Your Eyes. Those are my favorites on the record. There's a number of additional musicians and artists on this live performance, and there's a, just a cast of, well, I won't say thousands, but at least tens. But the one that sticks out to me the most was Daniel Lanois 
who is the co-producer yeah. of some of U2's biggest albums, including Joshua Tree and Octune Baby and a bunch of others. He plays the Dobro guitar and the Fender Telecaster on this record. He's a great guitarist. Yeah, 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 really good stuff. If you're into Peter Gabriel at all, go check this record out. It's cool. a really good, really good record. Cool. All right, so your number two. My number two. Well, I mentioned on the very first episode of this podcast, episode one, when we talked about all killer, no filler albums, yeah. that I keep a list of my top, fi- a playlist of my top 100 albums. Yeah. And sometimes something comes and bumps something else off. I got to move something else out to make room for it, but I've been doing this for years. And I have two live albums on that playlist. Only two? Only two. Wow. So out of 100. So my number two and number one live, best live Obviously albums Obviously have on, to be on that top are those two. So my number two live album here is Songs in the Attic by Billy Joel. First of all, I saw Billy Joel for the first time probably in 1985. I've seen him a few times live back then, and I saw him as recently as 2016. He's an incredible live performer, even the 40 yeah. years in between. Is that right? Am I counting right? 80 to, to, no, 30 years in between. 30 plus, yeah. 30 plus years. Have not changed his energy level, have not changed his enthusiasm, his ability to, to have a rapport with the crowd. He's an amazing live performer. So the songs take on a new life through that. He made the album Songs in the Attic in 1981, and he specifically did it for two reasons. First of all, his first two or three albums were made with session musicians. But yeah. by the time 1981 had come along, he had a great band. He had yeah. assembled an amazing uh, band that was his that played on his studio recordings and also played his live shows and he wanted to re-record those songs with those people but not in the studio right the second thing is uh, well it's sort of a two it's really a three th- three things actually um, his first album Cold Spring Harbor due to a recording error was mastered at a much faster speed than it was recorded and I, so as a result it resulted in pitches that he couldn't actually sing so he sounds yeah. like in his words like he sounds like Alvin the Chipmunk yeah. or Alvin and the Chipmunks on the album a little bit so he wanted better recordings of these songs also he had a great first couple albums cold spring harbor piano man turnstiles that were not nearly as popular as his next three his next three were I, i'm not sure the order here the stranger 52nd street and glass houses right and that catapulted him into super pop stardom but people didn't know his early stuff so he wanted that to get that out there so those are the three reasons why he recorded this live album mm-hmm. uh, again released in 1981 i don't know exactly when it was recorded i think mostly around that time so for a couple of things first of all this is mostly actually it's all early stuff uh, yeah he doesn't record any of his huge radio hits at the time second of all there are i believe definitive versions of at least three different songs from this album that blow the studio recordings away yeah captain jack which is a great song but the studio recording is flat one of my favorite songs when you listen to the live recording uh, miami 2017 which okay. is an amazing song but so much better on the live album than on the original say goodbye to hollywood which just has this incredible energy from the yeah. crowd there's others too everybody loves you now and so on this is an album that you can listen to it at a sitting it was not one concert each track is from a different concert okay and yet it's blended together seamlessly so you can sit there and listen and have an amazing experience and everything takes you to a new place you know if you're used to billy joel this takes you somewhere else yeah. um, which you can also get from going to see him live i'm going to quote a review okay uh, from 1981 in rolling stone magazine by a journalist named timothy white but here's what timothy white said about billy joel's songs in the attic billy joel's early output likewise suffered from studio snafus 
When Cold Spring Harbor, his first LP, was mastered, the 16-track ran slow and left him sounding like Alvin of the Chipmunks. And a couple of Songs in the Attic's standouts were rendered unlistenable on the debut album. Joel's Songs in the Attic is a very careful edit of his scuffling days. These cuts are gimcracks, gimcracks, I'm not sure how to pronounce that word, because no one says it out loud, it's only written down. <laughs> uh, these cuts are gimcracks from a catalog that didn't catch fire until the release of The Stranger in 1977. And Joel, very much aware that they show his development from Intent Greenhorn to Creator of Standards, plays them with self-absorbed vigor. It's precisely this vigor, along with Joel's canny pugnaciousness, that lifts songs in the attic above the level of a pop rock rummage sale. At his best, Billy Joel is an angry, defensive, wiseacre of a songwriter. So angry about his suburb, his own suburban angst that he storms with exquisite impatience from typewriter to piano, scarcely noticing the shift in keyboards as he skillfully stretches his all-American rage. It's commendable that this talented eccentric still has the nerve to be his own surly self. That comes through in the record. <laughs> Songs in the Attic by Billy Joel. So I don't have a number two. What? I have a tie oh. at number one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Give one A and one B? One A, one B, or one and one, or flip a coin How between these two this? records. How can I do this? Because uh, I can't. made up the rules. I just don't. <laughs> I don't get it. I made my right, own criteria. Go for it. One of my number ones is Exit Stage Left by oh, Rush from shocker. 1981. <laughs> shocker. You're probably going to be shocked at the other one, too. This double album was recorded during two shows on separate continents. So it's a double album. So sides one, three, and four were recorded on March 27th, 1981 at the Forum in Montreal during the tour for Moving Pictures. Now, side two was recorded on June 10th and 11th, 1980 at the Apollo in Glasgow, Scotland during the tour for Permanent Waves. The record reached platinum status with the Recording Industry Association of America, meaning that it sold more than 1 million copies in the U.S. So the band recorded more than 50 reels of two-inch tape on the two tours that they had to go through to find the best performances. And they went through a lot of them, and they were very picky, and they said, oh, we can't do that because somebody messed that up. I'm going to have to say that the job that they did going through all that tape was surprisingly good. And while they were working on this record at Le Studio, going through all the tapes and figuring out which songs they were going to pick, they actually wrote Subdivisions, which ended up on the cool. next album, Signals. Now, there's one song on this record that you will not find on any other Rush recording. It's called Brune's Bane, and it leads into The Trees. It's a short classical guitar arrangement performed by Alex Lifeson. And the song is named after Terry Brown, their longtime producer, who the band nicknamed Brune. And you'll hear Getty refer to him as T.C. Brunzi when <laughs> introducing Jacob's Ladder on the record, even though T.C. Brunzi didn't write the song like he says he did. And they get the title of this record from the cartoon character Snagglepuss, oddly enough, because every time Snagglepuss would get into trouble, he would run away and say, exit, stage left. <laughs> Which, Love oddly enough, is also the direction that the album cover picture was taken from. And if you look really closely at the album cover on the front and the back, you'll see an item or a person from each of Rush's previous eight studio albums. Cool. Every song on this one is a classic Rush tune. You can't go wrong with any of them. And it's just an amazing, amazing live record front to back. Cool. That's my co-number one, <laughs> my first one. Couldn't you slip a coin? 
You nope. want to do your second one, or should I do my number one and then you go back to your no, other? No, no, I want to hear your number one and then we'll go back. We'll okay. go back to my other number one. <laughs> your other number one, got it. Um, <laughs> number one and the other number one. <laughs> my number one live album. The same artist shows up for the second time on my top five list just in the past few episodes. It's Babylon by Bus by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Nice. And Bob Marley and the Wailers released several live albums, and the more famous one is called Live. But yeah. I think Babylon by Bus is the better album for a few reasons. First. First of all, I didn't know this until I was looking this up for the song. It was actually recorded here in Paris. Really? Uh, at a, wow. Yeah, at a venue called the P- Pavillon de Paris, which does not exist anymore. It was only open for five years in the 70s. It is a fantastic performance where, I mean, I never had the privilege to see Bob Marley and the Wailers live, right. although I have seen the Wailers live without Bob Marley. It's not the same thing. No. I would say it's not energy. It's euphoria. Oh, it's wow. something beyond just energy that you get from a live performance. Not just the band, but the crowd. Yeah. Um, and the, the album is mixed really well where the crowd is really part of the performance. Same thing with Songs in the Attic, too, by the way. I should have said that at the time. Peter Tosh had left the Wailers by this point. Yeah. And they'd gone through a couple of guitarists. The guitarist on this live performance, all, and they're, by the way, all but two of the tracks are from the same night. And the, yeah. the other two tracks were not recorded in Paris, but they were recorded on the same tour. But the new guitarist is Junior Marvin, who was more rock and blues influenced in his style. And uh, let me just read to you what, amazingly, the same journalist, Timothy White from Rolling Stone, <laughs> wrote amazingly in the same year. Uh, I should have mentioned what? this album was released in 1978. Okay, so here's what, here's what Timothy White says about Babylon by Bus. Babylon by Bus offers a fine sampling of material from the group's 70s repertoire, ranging from the wrathful rebel music and rat race to such sultry dance tunes as Stir It Up. Yet each number is now infused with sprightly clarity and tenderness that redoubles the emotional impact. Bob Marley's vocals are his most expressive and least pompous ever. It's thrilling and often deeply moving to hear the mutually exultant dialogue he establishes with his Parisian audience, a testament to the global appeal of his positive vision. Babylon by Bus reverberates with an awesome faith in the power of love in all of its difficult and rewarding forms. It's a statement that Bob Marley and the Wailers have been building up for some time, and it explodes here with a humanity and an urgency as potent as any of the band's previous darker calls to arms. For sheer emotional impact, Marley's strongest song on Live, this is the previous Live album, was a stark, accusatory, then belly full, but we hungry. While the most effective track on the current album is, is this love, whose jubilant message of ardor is every bit as stirring as that of his predecessor. Bob Marley helped invent reggae and now with stunning effectiveness he manages to reinvent it which is pretty high praise yeah coming from that guy i love bob marley but babylon by bus spoils me for all the studio tracks it's so much better to hear his live performances in general yeah and the ones on this album in particular and his studio tracks don't suck oh no no they're really (laughs) good i'm a big fan (laughs) that's my number one babylon by bus by bob marley and the wailers so my other number one, number one, one is Under a Blood Red Sky by U2 from 1983. Another shocker. Another shocker <laughs> from this guy. Yeah. Eight of the most solid tracks from the boys from Dublin who only had three albums out at this point in time. This live record was compiled from three different concerts in Boston, Germany, and most famously at the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado on their 1983 tour in support of the album War. This record only made number 44 on Rolling Stone Magazine's 50 Best Live Albums list, 
which is another reason why I don't trust lists from Rolling Stone. Good policy. <laughs> During the performance of the Electric Co., Bono sang a 27-second snippet of Stephen Sondheim's Send in the Clowns. And when the album was released, you 2 failed to get permission and pay the appropriate licensing fees oh, man. to include Send in the Clowns on the album. And obviously, Sondheim objected. Okay, good. So you 2 agreed to pay a $50,000 penalty oh, I see. for the unauthorized use and issue all future releases with a new version that doesn't include Bono singing the clip. So essentially, there are two versions of the vinyl album. Hmm. The original with the full electric co running at 518 and then the edited version which runs at about 4 minutes and 51. However, the various CDs that got pressed around the world all vary in the versions of the song that are included. Some of the original issue CDs say that the electric co is 5 minutes and 18 seconds but it's really only 451 and some have it the other way around. But all the remastered editions sadly are the shorter version. Okay. As I said about Exit Stage Left, every song on this one's a classic. But I have to say that this one has the best end to a live performance on any record that I've ever heard, and it's the song 40. Oddly enough, on this track, Edge plays bass while Adam Clayton plays the guitar. And they play the song to its final chorus of how long to sing this song. And then one by one, the band members drop out until the crowd remains singing the refrain over and over and over. And it's just the crowd, and they're clapping and singing in one voice. It's amazingly powerful. A little personal history on this. Sure. I'm so sad that I missed this show. Until May 17th, 2005, the Houston show at the Summit on April 8th, 1987, was the only show during which 40 was played in full and was not the closing song. It was meant to conclude the show, but the applause and the chant of how long by the crowd was so enthusiastic that you 2 returned for an unprecedented, impromptu second encore, even though the post-show Clannad music was playing and the house lights were up. Cool. My friends and I went to the show the next night and missed that. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Under a Blood Red Sky. It's a banger from front to back. It's the best live album, along with Exit Stage Left, in my opinion. I, right. got, I got a personal U2 story, too. Go for similar. it. Similar. No, one of the, the only concert that I've ever regretted not going to, I had tickets. My wife got tickets through her, her, her work to see U2 at Madison Square Garden. And wow. we were on a home leave uh, in the U.S. from here. We were tired. We were jet lagged. And it was snowing. It's about an hour plus drive in. We yeah. Just, we skipped the show. And I'm still regretting that choice. Every time I've had a chance to go see U2, I've gone. And we went and saw them the last time they came through Paris on my birthday. And oddly enough, it was the tour manager's birthday. So mm-hmm. Bono, sang, he started out singing Happy Birthday and switched it over to Joyeux Anniversaire. <laughs> and so Bono sang me Happy Birthday on my birthday. Nice. <laughs> Were you about to lead us into honorable mentions? Yeah, let's yeah. talk about honorable mentions. Do you, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go okay. first. One of the ones that's on honorable mentions is... S&M Live by Metallica from 1999. So it's recorded with the San Francisco Symphony, and it's a perfect coupling of hardcore metal and orchestral music. Powerful and surprisingly fresh. It's a really good record. Another one is Seattle, Washington, 17 January 1992. 
by Pearl Jam. This is a great capture of this band in their earliest rendition. They have so many other live records out there that you can get, but this is the first in a long line of really good ones. Gotta go with the super classic Frampton Comes Alive, Peter Frampton from 1976. Show me the way, baby, I love your way, and the epic Do You Feel Like We Do. Definitely an example of an album that created the definitive tracks, much yes. more than the studio recordings. Yeah, definitely. That's all you really have to say about that one. Live Bullet by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, also from 1976. Another definitive track. Definitive performance of classic songs from his catalog. This one almost made it, but it's only five songs. And I was like, eh, it's not as strong as some of the other records on my list. But live, exclamation point, by Cowboy Mouth. <laughs> this no, is the did. best version of their best song. The song is Jenny Says. And then one that is not a rock record, but I got to mention it. Willie and Family Live by Willie Nelson from 1978. This double album is just classic Willie Nelson. There's not a bad cut on the record. Even when Johnny Paycheck comes out to sing his hit, Take This Job and Shove It. What, what's your on your list of honorable mentions? I'll give a few. First of all, I, I did forget a detail I just want to throw in about Songs in the Attic, which sure. is that one of the tracks is recorded in my hometown of New Haven, Connecticut at Toad's Place. So Nice. I meant to mention that. Here's a couple. First of all, I gave uh, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison, uh, I think my number three was my number three. Yeah, it was my yeah. number three, but I didn't mention uh, Live at San Quentin Prison, which is another, another live good albums, album, which has the definitive version of A Boy Named Sue, the one that yes. he didn't tell the band he was going to do it, and you can hear him messing up and them messing up, but it's still so great. Uh, That's the a, one where he asked Carl Perkins to play with him. Not, think, on that, not on that track. I don't know the... I think, I I think, think he played on... I think Carl Perkins played on some tracks in Folsom, Live at Folsom Prison. Oh, I'm not okay. sure. You could be right. I, I wasn't aware of that, though. Uh, my honorable mention is Sam Cooke, live at the Harlem Square Club, which is another absolute classic album with... I wouldn't say there's a definitive track there, though. Okay. Uh, you also, you, you can't have this conversation without talking about James Brown, live at the Apollo. Right, yes. Um, That's an amazing record. You mentioned Frampton. I'll mention Cheap Trick, live at Budokan, which has the yeah. definitive version of I Want You to Want Me. I did not include, as I said in the, in the intro, I didn't include Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads, because it was also... So a film. It's a film. Yeah. yeah. Directed by Jonathan Demi, I think. Oscar winning. Same guy did Silence of the Lambs. I'm pretty sure. I think so. Yeah. I didn't mention, as you said, uh, Nirvana un- Unplugged on MTV. I swore MTV that was going to yeah. be on your list. I didn't mention Live at Stubbs by Matis Yahoo because I assumed you were going to put it on there. So I bumped it that, out of my number five. Oh my gosh. How did I not get that one <laughs> on my honorable mentions? That's such a great record. And my last one is just, I'm throwing a bone to some of my friends who I know listen to the show. Uh, it's really unfair to talk about live recording and I noticed I didn't say albums, without mentioning the Grateful Dead, who are the exception oh, yeah. in the sense that they encouraged fans to bootleg, to, to make bootleg recordings. And these live performances are traded on cassettes by deadheads around the world. Probably it's moved to digital now, I assume. I would but think the, so. I just remember I had a fraternity brother in college who had literal suitcases of dead show tapes and he would be like, oh, no, the definitive version of that no, song no. was from the 1969. You got to listen to Roseland 1981, man. You got to listen to the 69 show in Berkeley or whatever it was. Yeah. No, I, I know I know about 40 of those people. So, yeah. <laughs> so that one, that's a shout out to my, my deadhead friends. I'm not a fan and I don't know any of the bootlegs, but, but this is serious stuff if you are. Yeah. 
If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, there is a Spotify playlist that you can find in the show notes that has them all. All right, Rockers, we're back. And Matt's got something cooked up for us about female instrumentalists. Take it away, Matt. Okay, well, I don't want to show you too much about how the sausage is made here, but Seth and I are recording this episode the day after International Women's Day, which, by the way, Seth, note to self, we should make a calendar for the year. <laughs> try, to tie, <laughs> try to sync these things up better. Try to time these we, things We got a better. holiday episode this time, this year, at least. We did. So, yeah. But anyway, I tried to shoehorn some thoughts I had about female guitarists into our one-minute matchup about whether the guitar solo is dead. That yeah. was not enough time. I had a lot no. to say about this, and I think I went over, I think I went to like a minute 40 or something on that one. So, <laughs> the so, longest one minute yes. ever. So I, we, we thought we should come back and revisit this topic. So first of all, we want to talk about female instrumentalists in rock and roll. And let's be clear, there have been women playing instruments in rock and roll since the dawn of rock and roll or even before. Even before. Go back to the 30s and 40s. You can find these videos on YouTube of Sister Rosetta Tharp, who plugged in a three humbucker Gibson SG and started accompanying herself singing gospel songs. And then she was actually one of the first people, not the first women, the first people to start using distortion intentionally. Looks right. like you got something to add there. If you look her up on YouTube and see some of her performances, yeah. she is just phenomenal. It's not that she well, just picked up an electric guitar. Yeah. The woman can play it yeah. and play it really well. True, but let's get to the meat. Let's get to the steak. Because yeah. while that is true, the dominant trend in rock and roll is that women are singers. And instruments are played by men. That's just a fact. That's the way it's been historically. For a long um, time, you can yeah. think of plenty of women who sing: Janis Joplin, Grace Slick, Debbie Harry, Pat Benatar, Stevie Nicks. There's, there's so many, and even women who are talented musicians, talented instrumentalists, I should say, like Aretha Franklin and Nina Simone, who are both classically trained pianists, right? Often didn't play. The conventions were. At least the commercial conventions were that people wanted to hear women sing, but they didn't want to see them play instruments. Now, fortunately, that's changed. Let's get to it. There are exceptions, and they typically fall into a couple of categories. There are lots of women who played rhythm guitar to accompany themselves singing songs they wrote. Right. That's a fairly common thing. Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, Joan Jett of The Runaways and then her solo stuff, Patti Smith, Dolores O'Riordan of Cranberries, Bonnie Raitt, who, by the way, happens to be one of the most talented slide guitar players in the world. In my opinion, yeah. she's the best. Best slide guitarist uh, of all time. I don't know. Uh, Derek Trucks is pretty is pretty amazing. But Trucks let's not, is good. But let's but... not get distracted. Courtney Love of Hole, Cheryl Crow, Alanis Morissette, PJ Harvey, Liz Fair, and that's still happening today. Taylor Swift plays guitar, but she plays rhythm guitar to songs that she wrote. And Sharon Van Etten. These are really talented musicians, but their guitar skills are not outstanding in any way. They're just playing rhythm guitar in a way that a lot of people could do. The guitar is not the point. It's not the emphasis of their performance. Okay. You look like you want to take exception to that. Just for Bonnie Raitt. Well, because, yes, but she doesn't put her skills out front and center, unless you see her live. Okay. All right, all right. well, I'll tell you, fine, take Bonnie Raitt <laughs> off the list, but anyway. A second category is there were plenty of women who played instruments in all women bands. Yes. The Slits, the Go-Go's, the Bangles, the Runaways, Bikini Kill, L7, etc. Lita Ford from the Runaways is a good example of a lead guitarist who was notable because she was in an all-female band and played lead guitar, Right. but I don't think she's a standout guitarist. If you just listen to her and listen to a hundred other well-known rock guitarists, she doesn't stand out in any way to me. Okay. Regrettably, sometimes these bands 
were well known because they were they had a novelty factor to them. Right. Yeah. Other times they were just legit music, and I would say the Slits and Bikini Kill are two examples of that. But sometimes they really got a lot of commercial popularity, at least because they were marketed, they were packaged as something different because they were all women. Right. A third category is women who played instruments as resident musicians in solo artist bands. Right. Good examples of this are Wendy Melvoin of Prince, who actually wrote most of the Purple Rain guitar parts right. that are yeah. so amazing. Gail Ann Dorsey, who was the bassist for David Bowie. Tal Wilkenfeld, who was the bassist for Jeff Beck. Orianthe, who was the guitarist for Michael Jackson. B.B. McGill, who plays guitar with Beyonce. I can only think of a few exceptions. And coincidentally or not coincidentally, most of them are bass players. Tina Weymouth of Talking Heads, hugely influential bass player. Kim Deal of Pixies, and later she went on to form the Breeders with her sister, another bass player. Right. Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth. Melissa Oftermauer of Hole. Christy McVie, who played keyboards in Fleetwood Mac. Right. But generally speaking, for most of the history of rock and roll, if a band was both men and women, it was the woman singing or the women singing and the men playing the instruments, generally speaking. I'll give you four exceptions, and then I will tell you about what I think, fortunately, the, the changing landscape shows you today. Right. Four notable exceptions, and if you want to throw Bonnie Raitt as a fifth, you can add that. Okay. Uh, Carol Kay. Carol yeah. Kay is... Played- you have to mention yeah. her when it comes down to... I think I've read this before... I think she's the most recorded bassist of all time. She re- she played guitar too, not if just she's bass. She's not. If she's not, she's in the top two. She appears on over ten thousand recorded tracks. Yeah. Things like "Good Vibrations" by Beach Boys, yep. songs by The Doors. She has a huge catalog. Carol Kay was the principal bass player of a, a session group called The Wrecking Crew, right. which also included Glenn Campbell. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't think of the others, but really notable musicians. And you know her bass lines, but almost nobody knows her name or the fact that she was a woman playing these bass lines. Right. There's some great clips on YouTube. I'll put a couple in the show notes, but I urge you to look up Carol Kay. Basically, you're going to be shocked when you hear all these songs. You're like, oh my God, that was Carol Kay? Oh my God, that was Carol Kay? As you yeah, said, she's on everything. the 60s to the 80s, yeah. almost every great bass line that you can think of that's not by a bass player that you know is Carol Kay. A lot of them are. And certainly yeah. the Wrecking Crew was on a lot of recordings. Another exception is Joni Mitchell. And Joni Mitchell... Great guitar player. Joni Mitchell, well, she has a very interesting history. She had polio as a child. Yep. And she had weak fingers. So she invented guitar tunings to play the guitar more easily. Mm-hmm. And she created a basically a whole, a whole new way of playing the guitar, which really only she could ever do. She's very hard to imitate. Fantastic songwriter. And she is someone who was a songwriter and a singer but the guitar was definitely important, much more important than, say, Chrissy Hind, who was playing chords. Yeah. Nancy Wilson of Heart. Nancy Wilson belongs right up there with Eddie Van Halen and anyone else you want to name as a guitar god. She had a distinctive sound. She had a distinctive yeah. style. You can hear a, a song and you know immediately that she's the one playing the guitar, yeah. the lead guitar. She's a, a fantastic player. And the last one I'll mention is Karen Carpenter, who many people don't know. Uh, she's an amazing she's drummer. A great drummer, and she could sing while she was playing drums. And Which, I've got to tell you, is ridiculously hard. It ain't easy. And, you know, you could dismiss the Carpenters as being kind of soft, cheesy, folky stuff, but she can play the drums. She really could. Yeah, there, if you go look up some of the videos yeah. from their TV show that are sitting there on YouTube yeah. and watch her play, 
Yeah, she was really good. I'll, I'll put a couple of those clips in the show notes as well. Bonnie Raitt, I'll throw a, a clip of Bonnie Raitt. She really is a fantastic player. I'm happy to say that we're in the 21st century and this has changed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I tried to mention this in the one-minute matchup, but there are some amazing, principally guitarists, but I'll stick to the guitarists because that's the one. Those are the ones that I that I'm more aware of. Some amazing guitar players now, really changing the way guitar is played. Annie Clark, better known by her stage name Saint Vincent. Saint Vincent, yeah. Romy Madley Croft of the XX. Yeah. Emily Cockel and Teresa Wayman from Warpaint, which is one of my favorite bands. Rian Tisdale and Hester Chambers of Wetleg, which is one of the hottest bands out there today. Right. Phoebe Bridgers, Tegan and Sarah, and a couple more traditional players like Brittany Howard and her, which she now goes by by her actual name, which is Gabriella Wilson. These women are moving guitar away from the power chord, the strum, and the blues pentatonic riff as the basic building blocks of rock and roll guitar parts. They are creating something that sounds completely new, where you get figures yep. interwoven to sound almost like keyboard or string parts. It's mm-hmm. I find it very appealing. I'm always intrigued. I'm always hearing something new when I listen to these artists. And I don't know if it's because they're women or in spite of the fact they're women or have has anything to do with it, but the most creative work that I hear in rock and roll guitar today is being done by these people and they're all women. There's no reason why this disparity that existed for 30, 40, 50 years should have existed at all. I'm happy to see it going away. Hey Matt, that student band show at La Boule Noir was so awesome. They rocked my face off. Totally rocking. What else do we have coming up? (laughs) Well, hey, our spring session starts on Monday, March 27th. We don't have a lot of room, but we might be able to find a spot for one or two more people. So if you are interested in rocking out with a Rocky student band, ages 8 to 18, come on over to our website, www.rock-u.fr, and check it out. We'd love to have you. All right, Rockers, we're back. It's time for 60 seconds of intellectual insanity. It's the one-minute matchup. (laughs) All right, Matt, what are we doing today? I believe the question is, which is more satisfying, a great live performance or a great studio recording? There we go. Is that it? That's it. Did I get that right? I think so, yeah. Who's going first? Why don't you go first? All right. You got the stopwatch stopwatch ready. Here we go. All right. Three, two, one, go. All right. There's two points of view on this one. Uh, from the point of view of the musician and from the point of view of the listener. So since I've never recorded with a band in studio, I'm going to have to guess at this one because I don't have that experience. But my guess is it's a great live performance because you can do multiple takes in the studio and then through the magic production and engineering and mixing, you can make a great record. But there's nothing like the hive coming off a stage after a great set where the crowd is cheering for you and dancing and singing along. It's instant gratification for all the hard work that you put in. Now, from the listener's point of view, while a great studio recording can have great emotional value, uh, allowing you to listen to the intricacies of the song over and over again, I think you got to go with great live performance. Uh, you know, you have a shared experience with everyone that's in the crowd and with the band. Shows like U2, Rush, Cowboy Mouth, Mute Math, all of those are just as good or better than the studio songs, in my opinion. Wow. 57 seconds. 57. Well done. Well done. It Here pays to do research and write some things out when you're thinking about these arguments. All right. I, I did, not, did neither of those things. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right. Matt, your 60 seconds starts 
now. Okay, well, I don't really have a, a super strong opinion on there is one better than the other. I think both experiences can be very satisfying or deeply unsatisfying, depending on the quality. Um, I will say that, personally, I just prefer a live performance. Uh, the, the, the best live performance is more satisfying than the best studio recording, in, in you, for me, usually. Um, Sting had a really nice quote from his book, Broken Music, where he says, there are three stories every time there's a song. One is the story in the song, one is the story of the band, and one is the story of the performance in front of an audience. Well, with a studio recording, you only get two of those. Uh, when, you're in a, a, when you're at a good live show, uh, you are feeling something that you cannot get from a studio recording, no matter where you listen or how you listen. I will say the benefit of a studio recording is if it's no good, you can turn it off. So <laughs> I like the live performances, but I love both. There you go, 58 seconds, not too Yeah, because I waffled. <laughs> <laughs> you waffled. So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? <laughs> Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. Today's episode of Extra Credit The Rock You Podcast is sponsored by our good friends and partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble is your one-stop shop for all Anglophone music creation in Paris. Go check out what they do at www.bigpebblerecords.com. Extra Credit The Rock You Podcast is a production of Rock You. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinckley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock You is a nonprofit association Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time.